0: A Shakespearean scholar? Murder? What's that all about? Find out as you join us on today's episode of the Bending Bars podcast. Well, welcome to today's session of Bending Bars. Our podcast is uh, featuring a very special guest today. Dr. Laura Bates is joining us and... uh, Laura has a PhD from the University of Chicago in comparative literature with a focus on Shakespeare studies. She's a professor of English at Indiana State University, where she has taught courses on Shakespeare for the past 15 years to students on campus and in prison. For more than 25 years, she has worked in prisons as a volunteer and as a professor. She created the world's first Shakespeare program in Supermax, the long-term solitary confinement unit Her work has been featured in local and national media, including two segments on MSNBC TV's Lockup. She is the author of Shakespeare Saved My Life, 10 Years in Solitary with the Bard. She's been happily married for nearly 30 years to Alan Bates, a retired professor and playwright. Laura, welcome to the podcast today. So great to have you with us.
1: Thank you, Jim. I appreciate that. And I've got my little buddy with me here as well.
0: Outstanding. outstanding. <laughs> the bard, the bard is with us. I love it. I love it. It is really a a, a pleasure and an honor to to meet you and, and to spend time with you today, Laura. And we just want to thank you for this uh, great opportunity today to be with us on the Bending Bars podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Tim. And I'm so impressed with the program that you represent as well.
0: Thank you so much, Laura. we um, I was introduced to your book, Shakespeare uh, Saved My Life, a few years back and uh, was just so impressed with um, your desire to take uh, Shakespeare and ultimately a, a more broadly uh, based humanities uh, course program into, into uh, inmates behind bars. I'm running a program uh, that's uh, based in South Florida called the Civics Education Program. And Uh, something we hope to scale uh, even nationwide. But I wanted to just kind of start, Laura, with um, how you got into prison education programming and what was uh, the inspiration or the idea uh, that made you want to take Shakespeare behind bars?
1: Excellent question. And, you know, when I first started, if you were to go and uh, Google the phrase Shakespeare in prison, um, there would be so few uh, hits on that and and I and a, a nice a wonderful program in Kentucky that inspired me were about the only thing going actually years ago and now if you google Shakespeare in prison you'll see hundreds of hits around the nation and around the, the world really it's become such a phenomenon but for me in particular two things one is I really was very much inspired by the, co- the company in Kentucky. Um, Luther Luckett uh, facility and um, just very impressed with the work that they were doing. They were really pioneering the idea of bringing Shakespeare into prison. For me personally, two other things were happening. One is that I was a graduate student at the time. I was at the University of Chicago and I was focused on Shakespeare studies. And at the time it seemed like something outside the box or I guess literally outside the cage be thinking about bringing Shakespeare to such an unusual audience, because in graduate program that I was in, uh, a lot lot of talk about the universality of Shakespeare, and I thought, well, let's test that. Let's take it a little bit further. Let's see what prisoners, what inmates have to say about it. And at that same time, my husband, who was a playwright, still is a playwright, was working with um, a gentleman called John Bergman from England, who was doing a prison company um, called the Geese Theater Company. And geese would go into the prisons uh, with their actors from the outside and work, and partner with um, inmates inside. So I was able to um, observe their work. My husband was involved with their work. And actually a little bit of an argument grew out of that between my, myself and John Bergman where I said, you know, I like this idea, but I'd like to see the inmates really be the ones involved, more involved. And so I went into prison, I brought Shakespeare, but I asked the inmates themselves to um, do the acting, to do the writing, to do the adaptations of Shakespeare. So it was very much um, inmate focused. So that was, that was the different um, element that I uh, pursued
0: so inmate focused to be sure i recall hearing from your story laura that there was also a bit of a challenge to you and um it had to do with a phrase called the ipso factor valorization of transgression in relation to uh the great uh, tragedy macbeth could you share with us a little bit too laura about how that piece plays into the overall story because it sounds to me like There was a bit of a, uh, you know, kind of a a moment of uh, a challenge that could only be maybe satisfied in your mind by taking the next step to go into a a prison education program like this.
1: Absolutely. And I, Jim, I am so impressed that you picked up on that. I love that. It was on the day that I um, completed my PhD work at the University of Chicago I had just defended uh, the dissertation, which is a very stressful experience, of course. And at the time, I was also part of the uh, committee that ran what was called the Renaissance Workshop, bringing in um, very high caliber um, scholars from around the world. And we had Terry Eagleton. Found. And I love Terry Eagleton, very important Shakespeare scholar, of course. but coming fresh from just defending my dissertation and hearing Eagleton use the phrase that Macbeth represented the quote, ipso facto valorization of transgression made me think, well, is that really what real life transgressors would feel about Macbeth? I mean, it's one thing to to see that in the ivory tower of academia, um, this idea that there is something to in some way valorize about transgression, meaning, again, murder, right? That's what Macbeth, Macbeth's transgression. So, yes, that was very much that moment. I guess a little light bulb went off in my head at that time in that meeting, um, feeling, you know, I want to see what real-life transgressors have to say about that. And, And, of course, what I found was quite a different interpretation that what they saw in Macbeth was nothing to valorize in, in any respect whatsoever, and instead just found ways to examine their own transgressions and question why they made those choices. So it was a great inspirational moment and opened doors I never could have predicted.
0: No <laughs> doubt you you finish up at Chicago, uh, sort of the, the the scholarly, you know, kind of, uh, you know, juices are still flowing, you're 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 ready to 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 get going, and all of a sudden you hear this challenge. And uh it just it, it's amazing to me because on the one hand, you've got you know, Shakespeare hundreds of years ago writing about you know murder in this sense. And so the study of murder in Macbeth, if you will, was the impetus behind you going and asking, right? I mean, people who in fact were guilty of this crime who had, who had yes. committed this crime I should say
1: yes yes yeah. exactly exactly and um, you know that's that's one of the things in 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 graduate school and and by the way the University of Chicago is especially when I was there at the time I, I was working with um, the recently deceased now um, the but, but world famous uh, world respected scholar David bevington among uh, among yeah. others, Um, And so the University of Chicago for Shakespeare studies in particular was ranked number two or three, I believe in the world. So um, couldn't couldn't ask for a better uh, education on Shakespeare in particular. And yet, once I brought Shakespeare into a completely different uh, setting where I was working with people for the most part who had very little education themselves, prisoner that I feature in the book, Shakespeare Saved My Life, was essentially a fifth grade dropout who had never, didn't even know who Shakespeare was. So you couldn't get any less um, uh, you know, knowledgeable about Shakespeare. So what I felt like I was finding with that population was something more akin to what Shakespeare himself experienced, an audience that was new to these works. And just responding very viscerally, very personally, not reading the footnotes and not doing the research, but just responding immediately to the characters and the and the
0: situations.
1: And that was very exciting and very eye-opening for the prisoners, but for myself as well.
0: That is a, that's an interesting um, sort of bridge that you just connected. In other words, it's as if you are going in much in the same way Shakespeare was, um, dealing with writing, portraying, performing these great, uh, you know, theatrical masterpieces to the people of his own time. That's a really, that's a really beautiful way in which, um, you know, you just described that, Laura. Were were there any, um, just for for the kind of the uninitiated, the audience that that listens to our podcast that may have never, you know, stepped foot uh, behind the walls of a correctional institute or never gone behind bars or what kind of fears, if any anxieties, were you uh, maybe um, aware of or, um, you know, kind of preconceptions that you might have had prior to going into prison? People often ask me that question after after having uh, done the program for over six years now. But what were some of your fears, concerns, anxieties, if any, as you were uh, preparing to launch a program like this?
1: You know, um, I, you know, and, and I love the question because it always has me thinking back to the beginning, and and I love you know rec- you know recollecting those moments. I don't know that I had any expectations or fears going in, I can certainly think about some of the early moments once I was in and and some of those, you know, ah, you know, kind of moments like, oh, you know, oh, I'm in the room alone with a prisoner. You know, I remember the first time that happened and uh, and I remember the first time it happened that I was alone in a very small confined space with a prisoner from solitary confinement, Superman, long-term solitary confinement. So, in other words, one of the most you know dangerous in in the state. Um, so I remember both of those moments very, very vividly. But as far as in anticipation of going in, I don't think I had that much of that concern. And the only thing that I can kind of bring it back to is the fact that even though we've talked already about my background in graduate school and academia and the wonderful Ivy. You know, Ivy I Tower of, of University of Chicago. That's actually not the way I grew up. I grew up in a very hardcore uh, working class inner city environment where most of, well, I shouldn't say most, but many, many of my um, friends, classmates, um, acquaintances, neighbors, growing up, ended up in prison themselves. So. Mm-hmm. The criminal element uh, was something I was much more familiar with, and I guess we might say even more comfortable with as a child. And then by the time I ended up in, in the at the university at higher education, I was much less comfortable in that environment. My parents weren't college educated. Um, they were both immigrants from World War II that came to this country without even knowing the language, without you know, any money without any knowledge, without any education. So I did not come up from a pri- privileged background by any means. And like, as I say, my, my environment growing up was much more um, kind of criminal um, society. So I felt not unfamiliar with that kind of environment.
0: I suspect, um, And especially as you're dealing with individuals uh, behind bars that I think for them, and this has been my experience, often they expect us to be afraid. And when you come in with a sense of either either confidence or some kind of experiential knowledge, even as a child, it's kind of in your bones, if you will, in terms of as you as you put it, where you grew up. they've shared with me that's 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 disarming to them because they're expecting one response and the response that's given to them is almost one of acceptance, you know, right off the bat, Which which certainly helps as, you know, as an educator and, and in an environment like this, it helps kind of, if you will, mitigate, you know, any kind of distrust or, you know, any sense of anxiety, even on their part, which I think is, again, a really interesting part of your background, which I suspect um, not only gave you the confidence, subconscious or otherwise, but also uh, just the ability probably to relate early on, right, to your inmate students.
1: And those those are excellent points you just made. Um, confidence, I think, was one of the words you used, and um, comfort, I would add that too, that if you feel comfortable, and now I'm when I say you, I'm speaking to anyone in your audience that might be thinking, hey, I, I might like to do something like this someday, and that's that's why I love when I talk to any audiences and inspire somebody else to do this. These are the, these are the keys. Yeah, feel comfortable. Feel comfortable in that environment. At least do your best to feel comfortable and feel therefore competent. And as you said, it's disarming. And um, you know, if the other the other huge difference, and here's why: if you're going in to do anything like what I and many others around the world now are doing is more or less as a volunteer. I say more or less because I know some programs have some sort of funding. Mine never did. It was always entirely voluntary and my part and voluntary on the prisoner's part, which is important too. They really weren't motivated by, um, you know, any requirement or external um, reward. So if you're, if you're, if you as an outsider are going into the facility, Voluntarily, so they know that you're not required, you're not on a par with the prison, you know, officers, guards, administration, where you, you know, you are being paid to go in there. Um, you're there because you care. You you have a concern. Another word that's important to share, that you have a concern. You have a genuine interest in them. I even feel, even mm-hmm. though it was a little bit selfish to one extent on my part, that I was curious to, to learn from them about Shakespeare, I feel like that was, you know, a genuine two-way communication between them. I was there to, yes, introduce them to something I hoped would be beneficial to them, especially in solitary confinement. Um, But I also let them know that I was equally eager to learn from them. So um, that genuine concern, that genuine interest, um, you know, all of that I think would would mitigate, as you say, to use that phrase, would mitigate Um, concern on your part as well as on their part and put you both on a kind of equal level, I think.
0: No, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Our environment uh, at South Bay Correctional in South Florida is um, almost like a large cafeteria room where we can, we can have about a hundred inmates at a time come and we're very fortunate Laura to have that space and the availability and the support of the assistant warden and the director of programming. Um, it allows us to really, you know, host a lot of classes uh, at the same time, which as you know from timing and logistics and everything that goes into this, uh, the easier, quote unquote, the better. Contrast that um, meeting in a large cafeteria or a visitor's hall with you, <laughs> Laura Bates going into Supermax. This is completely different than anything, right? I've ever experienced. Certainly, in prison education, I've seen um, isolation cells, and I've seen guys uh, in 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 isolation um, on on prison tours, if you will. But you went into supermax, Laura, and you taught Shakespeare uh, to the most hardened. Could you just kind of describe for us just the logistics of that? I've seen pictures of you sitting in the middle of a hallway while guys are behind their doors and, you know, passing out assignments, but that is, that logistically takes it to a whole different level.
1: Yeah, it absolutely is a different level. And to this day, anywhere in the world, um, as far as I know, no one has ever done it since, um, there was one other group that I tried to help get started. It was when the prisoner that I worked with most um, most extensively, uh, prisoner Larry Newton, when he was transferred to the other supermax across our state of Indiana, I went up to that facility uh, with another professor from a, a local university. And we met with the warden there and the whole committee and tried and tried to get them to allow them to start. And that never happened, they did not approve it. So to this day, it's never been done before. But I'll tell you part of how it happened is the fact that um, my own background in um, prison work is actually kind of two different strands. So um, I was teaching classes for the university, Indiana State University, but they were university um, college credit classes. And I did that for years. And when I did that, I got to know the administration at um, the Wabash Valley Correctional Facility. It was the warden himself uh, who literally opened the door to me to into Supermax. And I remember the the day that I met with him, and he and he said, "You know, you could do group work here." And I looked at him like he was crazy, mm-hmm. like. Group work, <laughs> solitary confinement, <laughs> how does that work? You know, so he brought me into that area that you were describing, which is um, what they call R&R, receiving and release. And if any of your um, audience uh, for this podcast has ever seen the lovely movie, uh, Dead Man Walking, you, it's just one example of, of other films where you'll see an inmate um, on death row, for example, or solitary confinement meeting with his lawyer that glass door or meeting with you know his religious um uh representative but there's that that glass wall so you're kind Mm -hmm. of in the phone booth on one side um you pick up your phone you talk to you know to the person on the other side of the glass wall well that's where i was only i was on the inside if you can picture that so uh so i'm in that hallway (laughs) and initially i was just sitting on the milk crate uh, later I was upgraded to a chair, but um, so that's where the, the inmates were and they would be brought out. We would have anywhere from four to maybe eight or 10 at the most in that hallway. And that hallway did have these holding cells essentially on both sides. So yes, they would be um, escorted, uh, two officers escorting each individual inmate. Um, the inmate would be chained, shackled, uh, on a leash literally, and walked from his individual cell where he lived uh, down this um, long hallway into our area, and then locked into this these individual cells. And then you made a reference to the, you know, the kind of puff port or you know little food slot type slot in the door. That's the way that the inmates in my Shakespeare group spoke to one another. And uh, it was amazing to see these intense and engaged conversations. And sometimes they ask it, me and they'd say, "Now, well, who's, who's in the cell next to me? Because, of course, you can't see. Right? Um, but they would have these wonderful conversations and focused on Shakespeare, really focused.
0: That that is extraordinary. And so Laura, you would you would just hand uh, copies of Shakespeare's plays through these ports or they would probably get handed by by security guards, I would imagine. And Me. um no. and that would kind of go ahead. Me. Me. I, I did the handing. Oh, you did the handing. Oh, okay. I did the hand- okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Wow. That's, that's great. So you would hand out uh, Shakespeare's plays and uh, you know, have them read and, and have, initiate discussion and they would turn in assignments. But what, what was the um, what was one of the first or maybe first series of plays you, you began with, you decided to introduce them to, was it Macbeth? Well, actually no. Um, okay.
1: And let me just give you a tiny aside. Um yeah. In addition to meeting with the, with the group in this area, even before we created the groups, I would go out onto the ranges where all of these 244 segregated prisoners lived. And I would hand, that's why I said me, I was a hander. I would hand the, the papers uh, through in, into the cells of those that expressed interest. And I, that's where I got in trouble. I never did any contraband intentionally but i accidentally gave just a single sheet of paper which is a single shakespearean speech to one inmate who was on what's called a strip cell you know he was being currently disciplined and on a strip cell you have literally you the prisoner literally has nothing but a bare cot and he's sitting there in his under underwear and that's it i mean he has nothing in his cell and I showed up and I handed him a single sheet of paper and I got in trouble for that. But back your other question, which play? It was Richard II. Richard II, um, okay. Um, I would never do that. I, ne- I would never voice this on college senior English majors, but it was act five um, of Richard II, a history play no less, right? Out of context, but there is a lovely lengthy soliloquy Richard II is um, essentially usurped. Uh, He is overthrown by his cousin, uh, Henry Bolingbroke, who becomes King Henry IV. But when Richard is overthrown, he is imprisoned in the tower. So here he is in a physical, literal prison. He is isolated. So he is literally in solitary confinement himself. And it is the one moment in that play where Richard, who was never very introspective about himself or, you know, the meaning of life, that sort of thing, gets very introspective about where he is. And he says, I'm trying to compare this prison where I live unto the world. And he, and he engages in some really interesting thinking that the prisoners that I would give this speech to, uh, many of them related very well to it. And and one element uh, has Richard thinking about, if only I could break out with, you know, break through with, these flimsy walls, he says, with my bare, you know, nails, my bare fingers, and you know, dig myself out. Um, he talks about um walking um back and forth and fantasizing and imagining, you know, that he plays different parts in, you know, in his own um consciousness. Many things that incarcerated, segregated prisoners said they could relate to. So that was the first thing. And then we went to Macbeth.
0: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. aha so laura you would meet with them what about once a week for the period of 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 kind of a college semester is is that in terms of the structure of your program and and your class um kind of how was that run and how many plays would you cover with them during uh the, the let's say the, the the course of one class
1: well um, I love that you use the word structure. My first thought was I was completely unstructured because I, you know, nobody had ever done this. I had never done this. I had no idea how to, you know, how we should do this. And I'll tell you the biggest challenge and the biggest, you know, I don't want to say crisis, but the biggest question we had to address was: um, I initially started with four interested inmates, mm-hmm. and I remember every week I, after I would spend the evening in prison, I would get back out into the car. I would call my husband and say, hey, I'm safely out of prison. I'm on the way home now. And I would always say, and guess how many of the of the students, the inmates, are still in the group. And I remember he would always say, four. And <laughs> I would say, yes, I can't believe it. <laughs> we didn't lose anybody. So so I started with this very dedicated core of four. And uh, and yes, Larry Newton was one of them early, early, early on. But then it, the word of mouth grew and the requests grew. We got to a waiting list of 50. I mean, we had over 50 at one point. Out of you know the unit, as I said, was 244 prisoners. So that many wanted to be in it. So the big crisis or question was, how long do we stay with the committed uh, individuals I shouldn't say committed, but the dedicated individuals that didn't want to leave. They didn't want to go, like you said, a semester or 15 weeks and then somebody else comes in. They were ready to and say, okay, what's the next play? What can we read next? So we would have the um, core that wanted to stay and then we would have others that wanted to join. And so we tried to balance, you know, we tried to keep some of the core and then bring others in. Um, I also had created materials that I could distribute to those on the waiting list so they could read on their own. I created workbooks working with the prisoners themselves, and um, that gave the others something that they could um, engage with as well. So we could spend, you know, a year, I would say on average, on a particular play. And each summer, we created a second element to the program where. Um, remember, I, I said this early on, but I, I want to get back to it because it's important. Um, we weren't just reading. We weren't just studying. It wasn't just, you know, college Shakespeare class. It was all about rewriting the place. So it was very much a creative writing class in a way. So initially it was done as a group effort where every single member would contribute um, a rewrite. And I would take their, their um, writing each week and I would create a composite of it. And at the end of the year, each summer, actually, each summer, we would have a group of prisoners in the open population, not not segregated, but the general, the normal prison population. And they would then prepare a a performance of the script. And uh, that performance was um, videotaped and it was um, broadcast through the prison. So the inmates who wrote the script, who were in segregation, could turn on the prison channel and see their work being presented.
0: That's amazing. I mean, the ability to frame a class, as you said, it wasn't structured going in. You uh, were kind of learning on the fly or developing on the fly. I'm just, I'm just uh, kind of guessing here. But to have them creatively rewrite, not only read, and confront, um, you know, this these monumental works, Laura, but then to rewrite them, that must, I mean, there must've been, for both them and for you, there, there must've been a lot of um, something revelatory in that, you know, I mean, just see, seeing them and their creative uh, ideas uh, applied to, again, these great works, but also for themselves this uh, ability to via writing um, come, come to probably some deeply insightful truths about not only great literature but also themselves. I suspect that that must have just been a really powerful part of the program.
1: Yes, yes, and you know earlier in the podcast you mentioned that the population that I mostly worked with were convicted killers, and it was our our focus, our agenda was literally saving lives and. Um, to some extent we um i know that we saved some lives of prisoners inmates themselves and i know sometimes you know someone might say well why do we care about that but we also are saving the lives of a potential future victim um yeah. and i know i know i've spoken i've i've worked with and i've spoken with more than one um, who were at that point where, um, in solitary confinement, there is this thing called suicide by homicide, um, where you know life is just so bleak and just don't see a way out, and you're you're ready you're ready to commit suicide, but maybe not feeling able. One one thing that is done is to kill maybe an innocent officer, for example, in order to be shipped to death row. And I know I've worked with more than one um, prisoner who was at that point. So again, we're not just looking to save the lives of convicted killers. We're looking to stop them from killing again, whether it's still within the prison setting or once they're released. As you said earlier in the podcast, mel- most prisoners will be released. And we want them to come out with a better understanding of why they made the you know violent choices they made and how to get them to consider different choices.
0: No doubt, and, and what a powerful segue too, right? To the title of your book, Shakespeare Saved My Life. Laura, could you maybe share with us a little bit about Larry, uh, the source of inspiration for you for the book, and and uh, how you were able to be uh, such a profound part of his own life behind bars?
1: Yeah, and Larry was the one that um, you know I went knocking door to door <laughs> and say, "Hey, you want to read Shakespeare?" And I did get that core of four prisoners that I mentioned. Larry signed on initially, said yes, you know, I would like to be part of this program, but he was not allowed to be in that initial four. Um, exactly, it was a little more complicated. Um, he was a super high risk. Um, he had he had recently um, masterminded an escape attempt in solitary confinement in supermax at Wabash Valley. He had previously been involved in escape attempts from the supermax at the other Indiana institution up north. Um, he, uh, in a hostage taking attempt had, um, stabbed an officer. And Mm -hmm. so they would not let him come out of his cell to come to our Shakespeare group in that little hallway where we met. But. Um, when they told me about his background, my response was, well, is there any reason I can't work with him? <laughs> you know? And they said, well, you can. We just don't want to let him out of his cell. So I went to work with him at his cell. So each week I would meet with my group of four initially, and then I would go to his cell. And uh, same assignment, I would you know, hand him papers to work on that week, to read, to respond to, to rewrite, to address questions. And he would hand me in his homework, which was always much longer than anything anyone else had ever done and, and more thoughtful. And after having done that for about a year, um, he earned the right to then join the group. So he did that. Um, at one point uh, I had distributed a survey saying, hey, what has Shakespeare done for you to, to everybody in the group? And on his paper, he he wrote simply, Shakespeare saved my life. And I thought, yeah, yeah, he's, being a little joker again, he's got a great sense of humor. And it wasn't until he was released eventually out of segregation and we were still working together on the Shakespeare program in the general open population. And I got to sit down with him and say, hey, what did you mean? You know, when you said Shakespeare saved my life. And that's when he told me about, you know, how close to suicide he was at the time that Shakespeare came around, how it did give him something in a sense to live for. And more importantly, how the introspection, looking at Macbeth and, and questioning his choices, looking at Hamlet and questioning issues such as honor, you know, is revenge honorable? Is that an honorable motive? Well, what motivated you know me and my choices? As he says so many times, Larry uses that expression, you know, I, I kind of had to look into a mirror, you know, through Shakespeare, look at myself you know one of one of many wonderful things about shakespeare is that in a way it's non-judgmental it's not you know the prison therapist or psychologist coming to say you know you're broken you need to be fixed i know what's wrong with you here's what you need to do i'm just presenting shakespeare you know in a non-judgmental way and saying hey read about these characters and respond to them and so it it's the prisoner's own um Inspiration and and motivation and and action to to read into these characters. I'm not asking him to do that. He's doing it on his own, and and that changed Larry's life
0: um, to this day. It is amazing, it's amazing <laughs> introspection. And I think one of the reasons we would call these books or great books classics, in terms of how and why they've stood the test of time, and, and I'm sure you uh, can agree with this is precisely as you described it 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 allows the individual to uh, confront you know dilemmas in life the the range of emotions that we all experience um, it inspires a deeper level of introspection to the point where um, you have used Shakespeare to uh, essentially transform the lives of you know the the most hardened in our society and and I and I I'm not sure, um, I'm not sure educational programs that are designed for uh prison inmates really understand, if you will, the nature and the value of humanities courses like this. No doubt I know there's been a shift here in Indiana in the last maybe eight or nine years where there is more of a focus on uh vocational classes, which I'm a big fan of. No doubt I, I want men and women who get out to have, you know great training and great skills, but, um, but I don't think that uh, negates the value of you know humanities based programs like yours, like ours. And so Laura, could you share with us a little bit too about your experience on that front? Because I think that um, oftentimes value is seen in terms of, you know, economic contribution or a fiscal contribution or something in terms of praxis, something that's tangible. But with when we lose sight of, the power, the transformative power of of helping an individual mind and heart uh, grow, authentically grow, uh, that vision, if and when they do get out, will help propel them back into society and understand really what it means to be a great citizen and a returning citizen.
1: Absolutely. And your argument or your statement about the vocational is important you don't want someone to get out and and not be able to get a job but if that person has been able to get a job but hasn't come to terms with really analyzing why he made his or her uh criminal choices then what's to stop them from you know stealing from the boss or harming someone or you know losing temper, turning to violence. So this is where the humanities come in. And, and Shakespeare is one excellent example of that, but certainly could use other literature, although I don't think there's anything that works quite as well as Shakespeare. But the idea of a, a humanistic element to the education, and, may, and maybe it comes from a, a you know, a non-credit and volunteer, voluntary kind of program, but there should be something before an inmate leaves the facility, even if he's got technical training in order to help him, get him or her get a job, something that will also help him or her examine those choices that were made and and maybe think about how to make different choices. Um, I'll tell you, I had one other prisoner who's um, not featured, one in particular it comes to my mind right now, who's not featured in the book, but that I had worked with for many, 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 many years. and. Um, ended up being released after serving, oh gosh, decades, decades for armed, series of armed robberies. As he said, that's what he really knew how to do best. And when he was released, he was homeless. By then his family was gone, dead. He had no one to turn to. He had no job. He lived on the streets, I think for a year or more, And he said to me at that point, you know, when I saw him actually a a little bit after that, he said, you know, it would have been the easiest thing in the world for me to turn to the one and only thing I really knew how to do, you know, back to armed robbery, right? But he had so developed, uh, you know, that humanistic, you know, kind Mm -hmm. of education. He, you know, had really been introspective. To this day, he is pursuing a PhD program. And so yes, he got on his feet, he got a job, he got a home, he's he's um, I believe in Oregon now, um, working on a PhD in correctional education in particular.
0: That is extraordinary. <laughs> that really is extraordinary, Laura. It, yeah, I mean, and and it's not that not that one has to negate the other. Um, I don't think, and, and I know you would agree, I mean, the both and approach is is perfectly fine. They they're going to they're going to they're gonna do well, but to have that vision if you will, that that kind of humanistic vision is what's going to uh ultimately give them, you know, that that the, the desire to to give back, not only to not reoffend, but but to want to give back and and ultimately to want to help others. What I think is fascinating Laura too is the value, the value that Men and women behind bars can still bring to society, even though they're incarcerated. And I think one of the more powerful takeaways is the fact that uh, from your course, you inspired Larry and others to, uh, if you will, craft Shakespeare in a way to help juveniles, right? To help them not offend and to not go down the same dark, depressing path. that these guys went down, and I was wondering too if you could uh, maybe just, uh, as a final takeaway, share with us the great value. It's almost kind of ironic, right? They're behind bars, but yet they're helping young men and women not go down the same path they are. There's great value, even though they are incarcerated. Yes, and
1: you know I'll say to some extent, maybe even especially because they're incarcerated, because with that project in particular, I would go into Um, high schools around the state and specifically um, the alternative high schools where you've got teenagers who are in trouble, right? And, and already were heading down that path. And actually I worked with one, um, he was only 13, 14 years old, who was in solitary confinement because he had killed his girlfriend's cousin, which is, if you think about it, exactly what Romeo did. And the play we were using was Romeo and Juliet, and the play, I say we, I and the adult uh, inmates were creating their original adaptation of Romeo and Juliet um, and creating a video version of it that was then brought to um, teenagers, um, both at the juvenile um, institutions that I worked with. Um, around the state and even in the adult prisoner there, prison there was a juvenile wing that we partnered with mm-hmm. and um, they took the play they put it in um, modern language modern context but most importantly um, first of all they didn't really focus on the lovey-dovey story of Romeo and Juliet they focused on Romeo and his homeos as they would say Romeo uh-huh. and the boys and the violence and the violence that leads Romeo as a young man to kill his girlfriend's cousin. And they, they took five key scenes between act one and the pivotal act three um, climactic moment of Romeo's murder, the murder that Romeo commits. And they took five moments and interspersed a question, so a total of five questions that the prisoner, we would stop the action, um, You know, as we were filming, we would stop the action, we would dim the lights and Larry would step forward and address the camera and address the audience, the teenage audience directly and ask a question related. For example, the play of Romeo and Juliet, most of your audience probably is very familiar with, it opens with a kind of street brawl. And so Romeo or Larry would step forward and say, why did these two gangs, these two houses, why do they hate each other? You know, Why do they feel this blind hate? He called it blind hatred. I just hate you because you're a Capulet. I hate you because you're a Montague. You know, What's with this blind hatred? And then he would always with these questions address the viewer, the teenager directly. And, and he, for example, he said, who do you hate blindly and why? And so there were questions like this throughout the play. So yes, absolutely, these inmates, and Larry wasn't the only lifer in the group, there were other lifers, so some of these uh, men are never going to be back out in society, and yet from behind bars, as you say, bending bars, behind the bars, they are having such an impact Um wow. And, and I'll tell you one other way, two other ways they're having an impact. Three other ways. This is one where they're addressing the juveniles in trouble and trying to stop them before it gets worse. Within the prison themselves, their, 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 um, their cohort, their colleagues within prison, you know, Larry's being a positive influence. He's he's much happier. He's much more positive. He's teaching other classes, not just Shakespeare. He's teaching Spanish. He's teaching philosophy courses. He's being a positive force among other inmates um, that makes the officers' lives that much easier, that much safer. Again, using Larry as an example, he's communicating, as are some of the others, with family outside. And I know Larry was very, uh, you know, vocal with his niece and nephews and stay in school and, you know, and do the right thing. So so even if a prisoner never gets out, these are so many ways they can be a positive force. And almost every day I get at least one email and I got one just minutes before I came onto this podcast from just somebody saying, Hey, I just read your book, Shakespeare Saved My Life. And, you know, Larry's story, you know, really makes me think about, you know, the whole situation. So he's, he's having a huge impact from behind bars.
0: Laura, he absolutely is. And really thanks to you. I mean, for your vision, for your dedication, uh you know for the for the ability to see really just the incredible value of of a great author a great playwright like shakespeare uh and and to introduce him into a correctional environment um that has been completely transformative um as as you say in your book he he has saved lives he saved larry's life and he continues to save lives and uh i mean this this Our time with you has just been absolutely extraordinary today, Laura. Thank you so much for your great work in Shakespeare. Thank you so much, Laura.
1: Thank you, Jim, so much for the good work that you're doing and for this opportunity to be able to talk about this.